This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In the news, a National Aeronautics Science and Technologies Priorities document is published. Climate change may be causing more air turbulence. A sleeping Delta pilot gets raided, but it's a mistake. Another goof-up has passengers skip customs and immigration. And a man who flashed a Delta Airlines plane with a laser gets prison time. We have an Australia Desk report and listener feedback on aborting a takeoff. This one is really informative. And your thoughts on flying with children. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 745 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flate, and with me is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, folks. Looking forward to a nice guestless week again this week because we seem to have more fun on these shows. Um, and, and, and getting ready, we started this conversation in, about my first low-cost carrier flight. I will not be crossing 3 million miles, but I will be paying for just about everything, equivalent to 3,000 miles. All right. Yeah, you can uh, tell us next week how that how that flight went. Meantime, let me introduce Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year. He's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. And speaking of frequent miles, I'm just back from the airport as usual. So beautiful weather here today. Lots of uh, good flying. And uh, today started off with a hearing test. So I'll give you more details on uh, how Max's hearing is going uh, later on. Okay. And also joining us is Rob Mark. Hi, Rob. Hey, that, that's it? <laughs> that's, that's all I get? <laughs> I mean, after all these years, I mean. I can do it. You want me to do it? Rob Mark. Rob Mark. Yes. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is, of course, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot and a CFI. Rob also has some experience as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Well, I guess that throws it over to me. Um, <laughs> good evening from Chicago. I'm not going to talk about the weather, um, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be here with... Uh, how many of you are there? Uh, six, seven? My eyes aren't what they used to be. Apparently, yeah. All right, well, we're going to get started with some aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? We're ready from the West. Oh, yeah. Just go. First story, this comes from... ExecutiveGov.com. White House publishes National Aeronautics Science and Technology Priorities. So this was put out by the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And again, it's the National Aeronautics Science and Technology Priorities document. Now, they offer three strategic priorities. They are, first is achieving sustainable aviation, the second is transforming the national airspace system. And the third is promoting connectivity and speed. And we'll talk about each of those. But the connectivity part, when I first saw that, I'm thinking, you know, like 
internet connectivity or something like that, but it, it doesn't mean that kind of connectivity. It means like flying between places or moving goods between places, connecting places. But starting with uh, achieving sustainable aviation, that means net zero emissions of greenhouse gases for civil aviation by 2050. This is in accordance with something called the U.S. 2021 Aviation Climate Action Plan and the Climate Adaptation Plans for each federal department and agency. And the approaches they're talking about here include several things. New aircraft and engine technologies, operational improvements to sustainably reduce energy use and environmental impacts, also, uh, widespread domestic production and adoption of sustainable aviation fuels, or SAF. And finally, exploration and implementation of new and advanced fuels. So that's the first of the, of the three. I don't know if you guys had a chance to, uh, to read through the document. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's a, a PDF. It's not, it's not too terribly long. I think it's, what is it, 18, 20 pages Something like it, that. It is just a tad dry, though. <laughs> but you would kind of expect uh, expect that. You mean from a government document? Yeah. Uh, I I guess. Were you expecting a page turner? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I'll just make uh, one comment here. They talk about uh, next gen and how they're going to be uh, transforming. The uh, National Air Transportation System, it, to me, NextGen seems like it's become a catch-all for whatever cool, neato ideas you know they happen to have. I mean, I think the term's been around a long time, and I think it means a lot of different things. So uh, they don't really go into a lot of detail as to you know what they mean this time when they say uh, NextGen. So I, I think that's always kind of important to drill down and find out. All right, what what's actually in you know this uh, variation of of NextGen? And the other point I just want to make is. Yes, they're talking about a, a number of different things, promoting connectivity and speed, connecting people with each other at unprecedented speeds. It was is a quote in there, um, and I think the um, you know the vision they're promoting is great. Uh, the guiding principles number one is promoting safety, and one of the ways they do that is just by really slow rolling the certification process. Uh, because the you know the theory is that if you move slowly, you're less likely to make a mistake, be on the bleeding edge, and you know do something uh, you know that that kills people. So I think it's a great vision, but I also know that the way the FAA you know kind of goes a little slow on certification, yeah, it's going to take longer to achieve this vision than you know people might think just because of the slow certification process. Well, and let's go ahead, David. No, I was going to say, isn't this next generation, the next generation, you know, this is worse than Star Trek. Next generation's the third generation. These goal documents are always so frustrating because it seems like the goal documents that like this is, um, or priority documents, is a lot of it is just rehashes of the previous priorities document, but it doesn't ever really show the progress you know i mean it's i i get frustrated when we when these things come out because it's sort of like well these are our priorities it's like yeah okay but where did you do with the last set of priorities you have a mission statement or a five-year plan what did you make on the five-year plan what did you not make on the five-year plan but it just always seems like it's just pushing things down the road well and and it's a really good point 
David and Max too. I mean, because Max T, as you know, you and I were just talking last week about uh, a, a, a relatively new technology that uh, FAA, uh, and I'm speaking of uh, a remote tower concept, and we're not talking about automatic towers, or the, it's a situation in which they don't have to build traditional control towers. Uh, and uh, but we won't go into all that now. But it's a it's a really great concept, high tech. Uh, it's been proven over the last seven years at Leesburg Airport, just outside D.C. And uh, FAA has been on board with it. They've loved it. Uh, it passed all the tests, and then the FAA suddenly moved the goalposts on uh, Saab. And uh, in fact, I'm talking to somebody from Saab tomorrow. And uh, I, they said, um, you know, on second thought, um, we need much more time to evaluate this. And it's just silly because it's already proven itself. It's great. Uh, and, and it doesn't cost uh, any local government uh, uh, a tenth of what it would cost them to build and staff a new control tower. And uh, funny that it works out, but, you know, there are a few reasons, I think, in, in the back of my mind as to why FAA may have done this. But we'll save that for another time. Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I think the, the goals here or the policies that might come from these priorities are, I mean, they make sense. Um, there are a lot of things that we've been talking about that figure into this drones and uh, uh, advanced air mobility and eVTOL and supersonic uh, aircraft and you know all all air taxis all kinds of the things that we've been talking about for for quite a while and I think david's got a a good point I agree that um, it's it's the execution so the first the first part of it is you know establish the priorities what are the national priorities and then the important part i think is is the execution and I don't know what happens with this document that leads to execution. I don't know who reads this and says, okay, does Congress read this and say, okay, we're going to fund this and we're going to fund that or, or, or what? Or does it just end up being a, a policy statement uh, you know, that sits on a shelf somewhere? I, I don't know. I mean, I hope it's more than that, but it's hard to tell. Well, I don't think at the end it actually gives you any next steps, does it? No, it just talks about priorities. What are the priorities? What are the what are the topics that we, the government, think are important? Well, the timing's good because I think uh, Congress does need to do the FAA reauthorization bill this year. I believe hard to believe five years have uh, zipped by again already, but uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that uh, that's going to be quite the uh, stew pot of uh, different priorities that uh, you know they're going to have to. Uh, mix and match and come up with uh, all the directives that they want to come up with for FAA. So that's, that's, that's certainly a complex project in itself. All right. So again, we'll have obviously a link to this article, but also maybe more significantly, the link to the actual uh, policy document or priorities document in the show notes at airplanegeeks.com. So you can look for that there. I would suggest that people read it about 1030 at night because <laughs> uh, it'll be is that around your be bed for yeah be asleep be asleep yeah. by 1035 um something like that all right next item this is from npr 
airline passengers could be in for a rougher ride thanks to climate change. So, uh, Rob, you found this. This is kind of interesting. This this links climate change to what turbulence? Uh, well, there's been some. There's been so many reports about uh, uh, severe turbulence over the last few months that people are beginning to wonder if the number of those reports has increased. And they found out the, the research uh, for the story found out that it has indeed uh, the number has increased, and uh, the some climatologists are predicting or philosophizing, I should say, that uh, it is the increase in severe turbulence incidents is tied to uh, the amount of uh, uh, CO2 that we're throwing into the atmosphere and uh, that it's changing uh, uh, changing uh, temperatures and air flows and things in the jet stream, uh, which, of course, is making uh, the occurrences of uh, severe turbulence uh, more uh, more producing them more often i should say and of course severe you know turbulence is just air from different directions and different you know altitudes all kind of coming together and bumping into one another and and of course when an airplane flies through that uh, sometimes it's up sometimes it's down sometimes it's left right and and the main thing is that people don't often have their seat belts on when they're flying in what they consider smooth air and there have been a couple of injuries. Right. This is about clear air turbulence, right? Not turbulence that's associated with clouds or storms or weather or, or that kind of thing. And generally at altitudes above 15,000 feet where you're in the jet stream. And when you have uh, wind shear taking place, that's the, the turbulence they're talking about here, this clear air turbulence. And so as you mentioned, Rob, there there are a number of studies. There was a a 2019 study that was co-authored um, by the uh, professor from the University of Reading in England that the article talks about. But he co-authored this study based on satellite observations. And they found that the amount of wind shear in the jet stream increased by 15% since 1979. And then there was a follow-up study that they did where they used climate model simulations to predict that uh, clear air turbulence in the middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere could triple in the next three to six decades. And then uh, the third study cited is a 2020 study by China-based scientists who said that increased temperatures in the upper atmosphere are contributing to, quote, a profound effect on the wind shear and turbulence in mid-latitudes. Now, of course, the jet stream is is oftentimes where you want to fly uh, because uh, you know you've got the you know the boost so you uh, you use less fuel uh, which means you put less junk into the atmosphere uh, but besides using less fuel you get there faster if you're going with the jet stream obviously I, I was just going to say we need to be sure that we're talking about yes that. yeah it doesn't work both ways right you only get the benefit in one direction but airlines are you know not at least initially going to want to consider not flying in the jet stream as a solution to increased turbulence certainly well because of course that's going to uh, slow the flight somewhat or if they try to avoid it it means a more circuit circuitous routing 
but also uh, uh, more fuel burn, which puts more junk in the atmosphere. So, but then you know, you know, it would also help, I think, if people just sat sat in the stupid seats and kept their seat belts on. Uh, if you have to get up uh, to go to the uh, uh, the powder room, uh, as we call it. Um, that's fine, but you know what? Just realize that it's always it's always a chance because this can hit with absolutely zero notice. And uh, the, the the hardest part is that uh, the flight attendants usually take the the worst of the uh, the beatings because they're up and about. Right, right. In fact, the NTSB found that eighty percent of those kinds of injuries are with flight crews. The NTSB said that um, turbulence is the most common type of accident aboard aircraft. And from 2009 to 2022, the NT, uh, the NTSB recorded 163 serious injuries resulting from turbulence. Um, and some of them were pretty serious, major fractures, uh, serious burns. I imagine that's from flight attendants and coffee or something, I guess. Um, internal bleeding um, and other injuries. But again, that flight crews uh, accounted for 80% of all of these all of these kinds of injuries. And, and believe it or not, we didn't come up with this topic or this story just to, uh, to nudge uh, one of our, a couple of our readers who, or I'm sorry, a couple of our listeners who wrote in and said they, uh, they didn't appreciate our comments about uh, carrying lap babies uh, on, uh, on airline flights. But uh, this just happened. Uh, you know, we just, we're, we're, we're just reporting the news facts. Uh, News to those folks. I, I all right. I'm a lousy and and I, I threw a, a new article in the show notes that you know it, we talk about climate change and and not to get on your high hopes or stuff, but it, it does affect so much. There was a new study out that showing that as climate change changes, baseball is going to have more home runs because of the climate change, because of the weather in the atmosphere that people are going to hit more home runs and and with even with less with less steroid intake unlike what we had previously there's so many of these little and things you think that are, I'm crazy I know I know I know it's <laughs> okay David you've got to explain that how how are people going to hit more home guess. runs Th- thinner air, and so it's easier to uh, accelerate the uh, the ball through the uh, the air with a given amount of force yeah okay. yes that's pretty basic much that's aerodynamics. basic physics yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> density, altitude. All right, super. I mean, there's a reason why it's easier to throw a football at Mile High Stadium than it is to throw it down in San Francisco. You know, the sea level versus over a mile high. All of this stuff sort of adds together. And yeah, and if the simplest thing is, the simplest comment is, wear your seatbelt. You know, whether you're in a car or on an airplane, wear your seatbelt. It's designed to save your life, and it doesn't cost you anything to do it. Yeah, the first time I ran across this was just a a month or so ago, a similar story talking about worse turbulence because of climate change. Never really considered that before. And I just thought, oh, great. Of all all the different things we have to worry about, now now flying is going to get even worse. Now, granted, the rate of change seems to be relatively small, which means that, you know, it's probably not going to double in our lifetimes, and I'm looking at my co-hosts as I say that, though there's some of you out there listening young enough uh, who, 
who might see that. Uh, but a related thing, I just saw a story yesterday. It said first ever April tropical storm could spin up in Gulf of Mexico. So yeah, things are changing. Yeah, they are. At least we seem to be seeing the evidence of that. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, that's a good point, though, um, what Max just made. A lot of people tend to discount these kinds of stories because they say, you know, in four or five decades or six decades, they go, oh, I'm not going to be around anyway, so who cares? Well, okay, but somebody, well, hopefully somebody's going to be around. Yeah. Children, grandchildren. Yeah, we can bet that the airlines won't be flying at 20,000 feet to stay out of the jet stream because <laughs> the, you know, the, the cost of fuel is going to be so huge. But who knows? Maybe by then the, uh, the Hyperloop will cover the entire country and it'll all be ground-based transportation at 200 <laughs> miles an hour. I mean, it could happen, right? It could. It could. Not very likely. <laughs> all right. From NPR. So this is a story. David, you can tell us about this story. This is a story about how if you're an airline pilot sleeping in your hotel room, you shouldn't assume that you're safe. Well, this was a very strange story to begin with. Then when you find out that it's a Delta captain on crew rest, it makes you feel sorry for the guy altogether. Um, This took place in a hotel in Boston. And what happened was... The FBI and the Department of Defense Special Operations Command were doing military exercises in um, an urban environment, and one of them was to assault a room with a um, a actor inside of it, a role player who was supposed to be a terrorist, and they were supposed to be um, capturing the terrorist. This poor international Delta pilot was about to go to sleep, has a door busted down, calls nine, calls the front desk and says, I'm being arrested by the FBI. The FBI and the Department of Defense had the wrong room number. And this guy, because of his shock, was even a better actor than the role player, probably because he wasn't <laughs> know what was going on. Needless to say, eventually after he got it got resolved, um, he um, was let go, released, and I don't know what happened to the poor role player. He's probably still waiting to be um, a, still waiting in the hotel room to be um, assaulted upon, but. Yeah, this was not a good look for both the FBI and the uh, Department of um, Department of Defense, and and we talk about the importance of crew rest, but this poor guy, you know, I really think just blew it, you know, and and the fact he was a Delta pilot, and you know, just all he wanted to do was go to bed, and instead he had basically his door knocked down, kind of a, nope. sort of all of our worst nightmares. Well, I think more than that, I just can't imagine what kind of ongoing trauma this guy is going to have. I mean, the article I read said that he was actually asleep when they banged on the door. They put him in handcuffs for 45 minutes. They stuffed him in the shower. They didn't say whether the shower was running, which to me is just the weirdest place to interrogate somebody. I mean, when I interrogate someone, I never put them in the shower. (laughs) Um, But it also indicates that uh, when they finally figured this out, at least 45 minutes later, you know, that was when he was able to call the local police department. So apparently this started at about 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. You know, the police department shows up around 12.20 a.m. and confirmed, oh, yeah, it was just just a mistake. Sorry, guys. But <laughs> I, I just – I can't imagine the ongoing trauma. I mean I would just imagine that uh, this guy – this is going to affect the way this guy 
you know, feels for, for years to come, I would think. Well, you know what the problem is? It's just being confused about terms. I mean, the the the, uh, the security people thought it was going to be a adventure, and, and the poor pilot was just there for some crew rest. But what he didn't realize is it was going to be crew arrest. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Okay, I, I had a work. That was good. Out. That was very good, Rob. That was good, no. Rob. Well played. And you guys probably remember this is not the first time a, uh, a pilot has been arrested in a hotel under odd circumstances. Uh, you may no, recall. Fact, what I, happened to Rob? <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm thinking about the, I believe it was the United pilot who was actually um, a candidate for a president of the union when this occurred. And he was at a hotel where the windows were tinted in such a way that people could see in, but it wasn't apparent when you were inside the hotel room. Uh, that that was the case. And I guess he was walking around in his underwear or something like that. And, you know, people at some distance said, oh, my gosh, we're being flashed. And, you know, the, the guy was arrested and unable to run for the union. And eventually everything was dropped because people kind of realized when they looked at the windows, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. Um, but And I will also tell you that when I'm in hotel rooms, that story sticks in the back of my head. And I'm darn careful these days. And I'm not kidding. I mean, I, you know, it does cross my mind. I don't want to be in a similar situation. Close the drapes. Yeah. 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 All right. Another goof up. Boy, we've had a couple of goof ups here. This is from View from the Wing. Uh, and this concerns uh, a low-cost carrier, Norse Atlantic, arriving at... JFK's Terminal 7. And um, Max, what happened after that is kind of comical. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that you just figure is impossible, could never happen. That's certainly what I thought, which is why it uh, really struck me when I saw it. We all know that uh, when you hop off a transatlantic uh, flight, you know, you've been, it's taken you six, seven hours, you're kind of tired, but you still have to go through immigration, get your baggage and all that. So you're still not done. Could still take an hour to get out of the, the terminal. Well, apparently that's not always the case. <laughs> In this particular case, they showed up at JFK, and the uh, the passengers were allowed to just leave without going through immigration. Uh, and it's not the only time that that has happened. Uh, but what was really odd about this was that you know, once people made it out into the city and on their own, they were contacted by the airline saying, hey, you must show up back at the airport tomorrow at this time to go through customs, <laughs> which talk about a major inconvenience, you know, being told what time you must arrive at the airport. Um, but it, it kind of is vaguely reminiscent when I was uh, doing volunteer flights in uh, Mexico and we would uh, take volunteer docs and dentists to some of the uh, airports in Baja to provide uh, you know, services, you know, doctor services and stuff like that. And if you were at a non-towered airport, we would take off from the non-towered airport. We would then fly back to Ensenada. And we la- when we landed, we had to then fill out our flight plan for the flight that we just took because that was what was required from a documentation standpoint. So this after-the-fact stuff always seems a little odd. It's not unusual to get off an airplane from an international flight and go directly to your car. I do it all the time when I fly from Toronto because I go through U.S. Customs at before you leave in Toronto before I leave. Yeah. I, I can understand why some people. It's like, okay, well, you know what? I must have done everything. Must have done everything I was supposed to have done when I filled out the card and whatever, and just you know. Yeah, I don't think you can blame the passengers, but there was the part in there though where they asked uh, about people picking up their check luggage. And usually, internationally, you can't get to your 
check luggage until you've gone through customs and immigration. And now if you were directed right to the terminal, wouldn't you say, uh, you know, I left my overnighter. Uh, it didn't come around on the carousel because I never got to the carousel. Yeah, but I, what I, happens if you? But what happens if you only had a carry-on? Right. Well, which is, that's that's true. Which is what the article says is that being a low-cost carrier, most of the passengers had only carry-on with them. See, one of those advantages for flying those LLCs, you get to avoid. <laughs> you yeah. Get to avoid customs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once you get off the airplane and you it takes you 40 minutes to the plane because there are 17 rows of people ahead of you that all have these huge bags. They can't even get down out of the overhead. Uh and so you have yeah, anyway. But someone posted what they said was the email they received from uh from this airline. Uh, from Norse Atlantic, which says, this is a reminder that you have to be cleared by immigration when entering the U.S. You did, unfortunately, not clear immigration upon arrival to New York JFK last night. Please report back to Terminal 7 at JFK this morning at 0900 at row E. It is in your own interest that you are processed by the Customs and Border Protection of the U.S. government. If you have any questions, please contact us at support at flynorse.com. I hopefully they didn't have to pay any penalties or anything like that. Well, I'm sure they had to uh, pay transportation. What does it cost to get from JFK to the to the city? Not cheap. I mean, that's about an hour away. And not only that, imagine you had plans for the next day. Now you're going to spend an hour getting there. You show up at 9. Maybe you get out there at 10. You're back at 11. What a waste of a morning. Yeah, and maybe you flew out on another flight. Maybe you got in a rental car and drove three states away. I mean, I don't know. These people could have been scattered all over the place. But, uh, yeah, you mentioned that this has happened before, and uh, uh, the the article points out several uh, examples where there was a string of American Airlines flights from Cancun to JFK where passengers arrived, got off the plane, and just entered the terminal without ever going through immigration and customs. There was a TSA screw up where uh, a bunch of passengers into uh, New York JFK Terminal 5 were um, let through without going through screening. Uh, it's kind of a funny <laughs> resolution. They uh, they did, they tried to cover it up. They didn't report it, it says, for hours. While they were trying to find each of the passengers inside the terminal, they were reviewing the video footage from the security cameras trying to find the the passengers that had not gone through uh, TSA. But And it's happened at some other airports as well. Apparently, this happens more frequently than you would think. All right. One more item. This is from WDIO.com. This is a good story. We have talked about this, and Max Trescott and Rob and all of us have talked about the serious of this for years now. And when finally somebody does it and gets caught, that's great. They get caught in prison time, that's even better. And what are we talking about? He shined a laser into an airplane, and they got the guy, which was A, that's usually the first miracle, but the second one was he got two years in prison because of it. Yeah, hooray. Well, and and what made it easier to find the guy is that uh, they sent the Minnesota State Police out in an airplane to go back to the vicinity of uh, where the crew said they had the laser strike. And didn't the laser 
bonehead on the ground shine the laser at the state police, who, of course, radioed down and said, you know, we're at uh, Highway 30 and US 4 and, uh, you know, uh, came over from the northeast side. And, of course, the local cops got down there and they grabbed the guy. And uh, but, but I think people often think this is funny, and it really isn't. Imagine you're on the interstate, uh, at, at night of all things, and uh, and you're just driving along at fifty or sixty miles an hour, like some of us do, faster than sixty miles an hour, uh, and somebody pulls up along the left hand side, and some kid with a with a camera flashes a, a flash in your eyes, and you go whoa, you know, and you completely you're blind. Uh, are, are absolutely unbelievably disoriented, you lose control of the car. It's that kind of insanity that pilots, um, and not just fixed wing, but a lot of rotary uh, uh, pilots, uh, police officers, because they're flying low to the ground, uh, they're getting zapped too. And it's really dangerous. Yeah, right. It's a much bigger issue for helicopters for two reasons. One, they're down lower, and so they're hit far more often. And two, because of the large bubble canopies, when the uh, laser light hits it, it spreads out and essentially you know, moves throughout the entire uh, uh, plexiglass and just lights up the uh, entire cockpit in kind of a blinding way. What was surprising about this was that the uh, Delta flight was at 9,000 feet when they got hit. Now, I was really shocked, but you got to figure that those lasers, which you know, look like very tiny, concentrated, uh, small dots, by the time they, they go up 9,000 feet, which would be about a mile and a half, at least 1.5 nautical miles anyway, uh, it's going to spread considerably. Uh, and so it's definitely going to light up the uh, the entire cockpit. And the captain said that the vision in his right eye was affected for several hours after this event. Now, I read a separate story about this in which the defense from the, the fellow who got two years of prison was that, but nobody knows this is against the law. <laughs> and so yeah, it's not pretty, pretty weak defense. Um, but I think that actually there is some truth to that. A lot of people with lasers have no idea that this is a problem, not that they should get off scot-free because of that. Right. Yeah. And there is a warning that comes with the laser, but maybe people don't don't read that or don't realize that that same warning about shining the laser in your eyes applies even to a pilot who's, uh, yeah. you know, s several thousand feet away. And, and to add a little bit more to even Max Trescott's comment was most law enforcement flying in helicopters, especially at night when these lasers attacks usually occur, are flying with night vision goggles. Not only are they um, being blinded um, from the from a normal laser, but in a night in a night vision goggle sense, it's excruciating and can cause permanent damage to someone's eyes. It it becomes, for all intents and purposes, a um, anti aircraft strike. You know, a ground a ground air strike and basically an offensive weapon. So, if you know somebody who has a laser and is shooting it around thinking, oh, cool, look, I can paint an airplane. Um, do me a favor, kick that guy in the head um, and give him some advice that he doesn't really want to get busted the next time this happens. Or if you're really stupid and there's another helicopter following after you zip the first one, you know, doing it twice will definitely get you caught. So maybe you're right. Maybe we should recommend you should always do it twice so you could get caught. <laughs> 
Yeah, I want to mention that a year ago on Aviation News Talk, episode 223, I interviewed um, a lady from a company called Revision Military, which came out with what I believe were the first uh, laser eyewear protection products designed specifically for uh, pilots. And uh, they sent me a sample, and I've used it a number of times. And I think that in the future, this really is going to be the way to go, especially for the helicopter pilots who are flying down low all the time. Uh, the What's different about them is that they, they worked with, I think it was Air Force Laboratories, to figure out uh, exactly um, what uh, kind of dye to use on the lenses that would allow the colors of the typical avionics to come through and be red while still removing the most common green lasers and so on. And there are some laser protection products that are already out there, but those are designed for people who are in laboratory type situations. Uh, And so this was a totally different formulation for uh, pilots. So anyway, I'd encourage anybody who uh, feels that they need some additional laser protection to go out to revisionmilitary.com and uh, take a look at the products they offer. They've got the Stinger Hawk model for helicopter pilots and another one, the SF-2 for fixed-wing pilots. And what do these look like? Are these like sunglass kind of things? Or? Yeah. They're, one version is more wraparound, uh, which I believe is the version for the helicopter, which kind of makes sense because you don't want any of that light kind of coming in between the normal gaps that you'd have on the far extremes of regular glasses or regular gl- sunglasses. Uh, so one pair looks like sunglasses and the other pair is very much kind of wraparound so that there's just no way for the light to get in. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Good. Hey, what's up with the geeks? Let's start with Brian. Uh, Brian uh, completed his three million miles on United, as you may have heard. In fact, uh, he sent us the recording from the uh, from the flight uh, and the announcement made by the flight attendant, I guess. Um, after we recorded the last episode, but before we published, so I slapped that onto the beginning of the show, and then subsequently uh, Brian sent an introduction to that to that recording. So um, it's it, very quick. So I'm going to play that now, and uh, and here's uh, Brian announcing the successful completion of his mission. Hey, Max and fellow host geeks. This is your former associate producer and contributing editor, Brian. I wanted to let you know that I've achieved my goal of flying over 3 million paid revenue, actual button seat miles with United Airlines. As many of our listeners know, our main man, Micah, and I have been documenting my quest to achieve lifetime 1K status on the podcast, thejourneyistthereward.org. Well, we are in the process of recording and editing the final show, but I wanted to share with you the news of my accomplishment and send you a recording of the announcement United made on my flight from Cape Town to Newark. This really has been a journey. I set a goal to fly the remaining 300,000 miles in less than 18 months, and 13 months into the project, I've done it. Yes, I've flown 300,000 miles in less than 18 months. I would really like to thank the crew of United Flight 1123, that was the Cape Town to Newark flight, and Flight 2318, Newark to Los Angeles, both flight crews took really great care of me and made my trip home very special. I would also like to thank Dispatcher Greg for communicating with the pilots on Flight 1123. Because of his efforts, the pilot gave me a copy of the flight plan, along with a map showing the exact spot where I crossed the 3 million mile mark. It's super special and something I'll never forget. Thank you all so much. 
If people want to learn more about my adventures in the last flights of the project, they can listen to Mike and I talk about it on episode 38 and 39 of the thejourneyistthereward.org or through their very favorite podcast player as soon as we're finished with the recording and editing. In the meantime, here's the announcement made by Persa Kathleen on my flight where I crossed the 3 million mile mark. On behalf of all of us here at United, we would like to recognize one of our very important passengers, Mr. Brian Coleman, is completing 3 million miles on this flight with us this evening, and we would all like to congratulate him and thank him for being such a loyal passenger and customer of United Airlines. Thank you, Mr. Coleman. I imagine the other passengers were thinking, three million miles? What is this guy, nuts? <laughs> we, we never thought that, though, Brian. No, of course not. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a great accomplishment. Um, Brian uh, has, uh, has put a lot of effort into, uh, into completing that, into making that goal. And he did some interesting things along the way. And, you know, he started the, the other podcast with Micah. And, you know, all kinds of things have happened. So, uh, yeah, definitely congratulations to Brian Coleman. What, what I want to know now is what's the next challenge? I know. I was talking to someone just a day or so ago who has 3 million miles and who was telling me that, oh, yeah, if you get to 4 million, you get, you know, something else. <laughs> oh, no. There's always, there's always another goal out there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Rob, what's up with you these days? I wanted to mention something that uh, – we posted over at Jetwine today. Well, let's see. Today's Monday, so it'll be Wednesday when anybody hears this. But uh, it's a story about uh, two pilots that were flying on-demand uh, Part 135 charter uh, some years ago. And uh, they got a bit sleepy. And, you know, it happens. I mean, that everybody knows that uh, on-demand pilots fly in the backside of the clock often. And... Uh, they had some unusual adventures in in sleepy time, uh, but I will save that to uh, uh, until people actually read the story. And any resemblance between the uh, captain on this flight and uh, me are simply <laughs> uh, exaggerated or co- not coincidental. Or I didn't do it. I mean, it it wasn't me. It was somebody else that. Sounded like me. Uh, anyway. But. It's not fact. It's a memoir. It's a <laughs> memoir. Fa- right. And the statute of limitations has passed, I think. So you're safe, we think. All right. Good. And uh, Max Trescott, how about you? Oh, I got done with a, a mountain flight uh, last week, I think. So uh, one of the first couple of days in April, second or third, I was up at uh, South Lake Tahoe and also at Truckee. And I was surprised, now that we're talking early April here, when I landed at uh, South Lake Tahoe, I was surprised to find that they still had not plowed the runways, uh, not, pardon me, the taxiways yet. <laughs> so we landed on the runway. There was a little tiny carve out where you could get to the ramp and the FBO. But if you wanted to get to either end of the runway to, ta- to take off, you had to back taxi down the, the runway the entire way. <laughs> so I was quite shocked. Uh, and as we pulled off... Um, into the little dugout area for the FBO because there was another aircraft going to use the 
the runway, uh, I, for whatever reason, I don't remember why, took the controls and was doing the taxiing probably so that the other pilot could do something. And wouldn't you know, I strayed off of the yellow center line oh, no. and I happened to look out the right wing and go, <gasps> I was you know, seemingly a foot or less away from striking my uh, right uh, navigation light into about a five foot wall of snow and ice. <laughs> and I was just kind of horrified that I, I made such a, a junior mistake. So all I am, <laughs> all I can tell you folks is that basic stuff that you learn first day of, as a private pilot, where they tell you, follow the yellow line that still applies 50 years. And you know, for <laughs> tens of thousands of hours later, you're still, still supposed to do that. And there's a good reason for it. So yeah. I got really lucky, uh, but it was just one of those kind of kick in the pants reminders, which was, man, you got to do it right every time. So that was uh, a little bit humbling. And I was happy happy that uh, I didn't actually you know, break the uh, the light off. But it's been a long time since I've flown an area where the snow was piled up higher than the way oh, the aircraft. So we certainly got a lot of snow here in California this year. Uh, other thing I want to mention is I'm headed out uh, next weekend to uh, Knoxville, where I'll be doing a, a week of uh, training in a vision jet with a, a new owner. Uh, so I probably won't be here on Monday night because I'll be back on the road again. Uh, these are always fun to do. I've got another one scheduled in May as well. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a fun break from, you know, being uh, down in the traffic pattern, teaching people how to land, instead being up high and kind of teaching people to think faster, which is probably the, the key thing that we try to accomplish uh, on these training missions. So this is you training the new owner. Exactly, because uh, for owners that get their type ratings in a simulator, which is how uh, the VisionJet uh, type rating is, is accomplished here in the U.S., uh, those people require 25 hours of experience afterwards uh, in the actual jet itself. And so I'm the, the person that rides along because they need someone who else is, who is also type rated uh, to be up there with them so that they can get their 25 hours of experience. How did they, how did they come to select you for this? You know, someone asked me that uh, the other day, and I said, you know, I'm not sure that there's any rhyme or reason. I think it's mostly word of mouth. Uh, I, I certainly don't advertise or uh, you know, hold out as someone who's available to do that. But uh, these tend to be uh, people who are in Northern California, and somehow they, they end up contacting me. Are you picking up a new airplane? We are. So then you're going to have to get as much time on the way back as you, you can, right? Well, I'll tell you, the, the last time we brought one back, which was, I think, two months ago, yeah, it was 100 knot headwinds the whole time. So we got lots of time <laughs> in yeah. that airplane. Is there a break-in period for a vision jet? So there is a process where they put some number of hours on it before the uh, owner takes delivery. My wild guess is it's on the order of four to five hours. Uh, they certainly do some flight testing when it first uh, comes off the production line. But then they also fly it from the factory in uh, Duluth down to the delivery center in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. So I'm kind of guessing that all told, there's probably four or five hours before it gets released to a customer. Yeah. Interesting. Just make sure it doesn't have any mice in it <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or cobras. Snakes. Yeah, exactly. That's That would be more concerning to me. 
And I also just wanted to mention my uh, hearing test, which I teased back at the uh, the intro. And I want to let folks know I have had hearing loss at least since my early 20s when I was uh, tested at my uh, first job after college. And I'm sure it comes from my uh, time as a uh, teenager when I was listening to my ham radio. And I was always trying to, uh, you know, listen to pull contacts out from, you know, far distant you know, places from amid the static crashes. And there were times when I would go to bed and my ears were just kind of ringing. And I just know that it was all those static crashes that, you know, caused that. So I've worked really hard over the years since then to try and preserve uh, what hearing I have left. And the good news is I'm not at the point where I need a hearing aid, but uh, definitely noisy restaurants are very difficult for me to uh, to hear conversations. I also know that uh, my wife would prefer the TV volume to be a little bit lower than I prefer it. Uh, and I've always worn uh, A&R headsets, the automatic noise reduction headsets for years. But last year, uh, late in the year, I started to realize that I was getting a tinnitus, which is that uh, kind of constant uh, ringing in your ears. And I knew that I had to go get a hearing test and get it evaluated. It didn't really uh, get around to doing it. But then I realized uh, just a few weeks ago that my uh, FAA medical is due at the end of this month. And it occurred to me, huh, I may have to uh, provide some paperwork uh, on this. And I contacted AOPA and they said, oh, yeah, you know, when you declare that, they're going to want to see additional paperwork that says that uh, you've had it evaluated and what the treatment is and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, did that uh, today and confirmed that you know, what I just always knew, which is that, yeah, I got some uh, hearing loss on the low end and some hearing loss on the uh, the high end. And that fortunately, the, the tinnitus is kind of a low enough level that really doesn't bother me. In fact, I could barely hear it today uh, when I was uh, getting tested. Uh, it usually is loudest when I'm getting ready to go to sleep at night. Um, but the thing that I was really amazed by, I never heard this before, is that the audiologist mentioned that there have been studies in recent years that have established a link between cognitive decline and hearing loss, which basically uh, she said that, you know, parts of the brain that are you know, listening to different frequency ranges, you know, cease to get stimulated as you lose uh, some of your hearing and that causes some brain cells to, uh, to atrophy. And so she said that the recommendation these days is that you may want to get a hearing aid before you absolutely feel like, oh, you really need one because your hearing is so terribly bad. So I just want to pass that along because that was certainly a, a new insight to me. Yeah. Hearing people. Could you repeat that again, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't hear that. I think younger people uh, underestimate the importance of maintaining your hearing health, I guess you, you could say, because you don't really see any negative effects from it when you're young. But when you're older, the effects can be incredibly significant. And, you know, by then it's it's kind of too late. I mean, you can get a hearing aid and uh, but still, I mean, it's it's they're kind of limited and you know not always convenient and i mean there's just lots of issues so god yeah protect your uh, protect your hearing i have tinnitus all the time i think i think most of the time i subconsciously tune it out but mine is so loud that i can be driving 65 miles an hour on the highway and i can hear my ears ringing that's how loud wow. it is yeah it's it's really loud well, I think another issue with the hearing tests is that uh, when they, they uh, 
you know, you, you do the tones and you, you release the button when you don't hear the tone. And, and, and there's more to it than that, because what, what I found for me, it comes from years of, you know, teaching people how to fly in Cessna 150s. We never wore headsets of any kind. We just cranked the radios up, and we thought it was cool. Would I'd open the window on my side, or the student might open their window on their side just to get some fresh air, and we'd we go, yeah, yeah, oh, no, I, I said about about seventy knots, you know, you'd be yelling and screaming, and we didn't think anything of it. And years later, I mean, when my hearing started to decline. It wasn't just the fact that I couldn't hear people, as Max mentioned, about being in a, in a large, uh, echoey kind of room. I can't always understand what they're saying. And there's a vast difference that uh, you're sitting across the table from somebody, and, and you can see their lips are moving, and you can hear maybe every fifth word, and you have no idea what they're saying. And the guy next to you goes, oh, yeah. And I think, how in the Sam Hill can they understand them, the, the other person from across the table in this loud, noisy room? But that's what my hearing has declined to. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more comp- People think that it's just kind of a volume issue, right? It, it's, you can't hear it. It's, it's not. not. It's, yep. it's not. Um, I, I know that if you're talking, Rob, and you are not the loudest sound, in other words, like if there's background music playing that's louder than you, I can't hear you. Other people can. That's why when I listen to music, in most cases, especially, you know, rock, you know, highly amplified music, I can't understand the words. I can hear the music and I can sort of get the, the feel of the, you know, of the lyrics. But if you ask me, what are the lyrics to that song? I cannot tell you. And that's, that's it's, you know, it's a hearing issue. That's interesting because that that's always been a big problem of mine ever since I was a teenager. I could never understood, I could never understand how other people could pick out lyrics. And to me, it's like, yeah, there are words in there, and I love the the beat, but man, I don't know what those words are. Yeah, as we all sit here with with earphones on and prolonging this agony, talking about hearing. <laughs> well, you obviously didn't know. You didn't realize I was speaking. When you interrupted me, did you, David? Because you couldn't what, hear me. What? 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 See? No, I was going to say the other uh, the other prime issue that oh my god, are you ever getting old? Is when you're watching a show uh, on the telly and you, even big screen, and and you can see them, you can hear them, but you can't quite. What? What did she say to him? You know, and and people now they they there was a story in the Wall Street a couple of months ago about how many people use the closed caption uh, to actually figure out what the words are that people are saying. And I thought it was just me, but I guess it's, it's not. not. I, yep. I've started doing that too. David's so if you want to take over the uh, Airplane Geeks podcast someday, and you're not one of our relatives, this would be the time to convince us that you've put us in your will, and maybe we'll take care of you. But I'm just thinking about it. All right. So we've been, um, each episode we've been having one of us uh, give their story, their aviation story, their history um, to everyone. David went last week. Um, do uh, either of you guys, Rob Sorry or Max, that for all- What's that? I said sorry to everybody who bored, I bored with that. No, no, no. It was very interesting, I thought. So do you, one of you guys want to go, or do you want me to do it? I 
have to have notes. I, I need cue cards. Okay. Go, so for, you, you go can, for it, Max. We want to hear you. Okay. So you guys can work on your uh, notes for next time. So, Well, I mean, my aviation story it really starts out being more about space. I mean, as a kid, I was interested in space because that was in the uh, early portions of the manned space flight program. And, uh, you know, I, I remember watching the Mercury and Gemini and, you know, Apollo astronauts. And so I was really into uh, into that sort of thing. And I actually started making model rockets back in the uh, 60s. I started there. And in fact, as a, I don't know, 14-year-old or something, I started a model rocketry club. And um, subsequently, I, I had learned that uh, it's actually still operating today. It's a pretty big, uh, a pretty big club, but I, you know, I designed my own rockets. I built my own rockets, and the whole thing kind of culminated in a um, rather large rocket that I built. Uh, now, uh, subsequently, there's something that's developed called high-powered rocketry, and it, and if you're familiar with that, it wasn't that big, but it was definitely a lot bigger and more powerful than the typical model rocket. And so uh, living in a D.C. suburb, my father made me contact the FAA to notify them that I was going to be launching this big rocket. And I never really knew if he really thought that there was a requirement that I do this or if he wanted to give me the experience of contacting the FAA, you know, a government agency for permission. But either way... um, um, I, I did that. So, I mean, then I, I grew up. I went away to school. I eventually got a BS in engineering from uh, Cornell. It, halfway through that program, I realized I really didn't want to be an engineer. I, business was more interesting to me. And as a result, I really didn't spend that much time studying. <laughs> and I, I was more of a uh, sort of a serial entrepreneur. Um, and my grades were were really bad, but I did select some astronomy courses as electives, and uh, you may know these some of these names. Carl Sagan and Frank Drake were a couple of my professors that were very interesting, and Carl introduced me to Isaac Asimov uh, once, which was oh, which wow. was pretty spectacular. But as the uh, as my final year approached, I took the uh, the GMAT test uh, for business schools. Um, which I think is different now, but uh, the graduate management admissions test. And I was really nervous because I don't do well on standard tests. Uh, my grades <laughs> in college were really, really bad. But I I kind of aced the GMAT test to the extent where that before I even filled out any applications for admissions to uh, an MBA graduate school. Schools schools were writing to me saying, you're in if you want to come to our school. So I went to BU because uh, my, uh, well, at that time, soon-to-be wife was from Boston. So that was a no-brainer. Plus, it was Boston. So that's a great town. Uh, So there I was uh, approaching the uh, graduation with my MBA. And I, um, I had offers for several companies. One was Pratt & Whitney. A director from Pratt & Whitney had come to one of my classes, one of my graduate classes, not as a recruiting visit, but to talk about some aspect of the business. And I was pretty impressed with with that guy. So I went off and interviewed at Pratt & Whitney. There was a semiconductor company that I interviewed with. They um, 
made a nice offer. And then Black & Decker um, also gave me an offer after I interviewed them. But in the end, it was kind of between Pratt & Whitney and Black and & Decker. So, so, you know, jet engine – and this is when Black & Decker was big on appliance, kitchen appliances and things like that. You know, it was like jet engines or kitchen appliances. So that decision didn't take very long. And that's how I uh, – and so I went to to work for Pratt and & Whitney. And, and my whole career, I was at Pratt & Whitney for 35 years. Yeah, actually, it was more like a series of different careers in one company. I was, uh, I was in IT and finance and HR, materials, manufacturing, spent a lot of time in MRO, logistics, business development, sales and marketing, legal department, and probably some others that I can't remember right now. Um, but along the way, uh, my online aviation activities started ramping up. And in, in 96, I started a, a, uh, an aviation directory called 30,000 Feet. And it grew to be a gigantic, curated, categorized directory of online aviation resources, uh, all hand-coded, by the way, which was kind of a little bit nuts. But And then I had a, I had a blog or two along the way um, as well. And then the way Airplane Geeks got started was in 2008, someone I didn't know named Courtney Miller sent me an email with an idea for an aviation podcast and asked if I wanted to, to co-host. Um, and that's, uh, that, that's how this podcast started. But the, the complete story about the, the podcast is probably a, a conversation for another time. So that's kind of my path to, uh, to aviation. What's your undergrad degree in? Oh, uh, engineering. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I have a BS in engineering. I, uh-huh. I got into engineering. I went to engineering school because I liked science, and that seemed like engineering. And then when I learned what engineers did, eh, not so much. I, I wasn't <laughs> that, that, that wasn't exactly what I wanted to, I wanted to do. It's kind of like attorneys. I, I know many attorneys who sweated their way through law school and years later decided they didn't really want to be attorneys. Yeah, but along just, the... Just to be clear, he said he went to Cornell. He was not sweating. He was probably freezing to death for cold, about yeah. four yeah. months out of the year. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is he may not be an engineer, but later in life he became quite the good audio engineer. Good point. And what I was going to say is, you know, to the example of a, a lawyer, goes someone who goes to law school and doesn't really want to be a lawyer, it still teaches you a way of thinking, a way of a, to approach problems. Engineering is the same. Almost any discipline is the same way. You don't have to go into that profession uh, to take advantage of what you learn studying a particular, particular subject. Uh, and that was the case for me. I mean, I learned a... Uh, a problem-solving methodology, if you will, in, you know, in engineering school. I also had some really, really good computer science professors who uh, taught me how to uh, how to code, um, and that's something that sort of carried through. That's why I originally started the the, the aviation directory is because I was curious about how these this new thing called the World Wide Web and how these websites worked. Well, the best way to learn about that is to is to do one. It was actually the same for Airplane Geeks. One of the reasons I co-started this this podcast was because I had been listening to 
a few aviation podcasts back then, and there were only a few back then. And I was just really curious about how how does that work? You know, how do you how do you make a podcast? How does how do people listen to podcasts? And I thought, well, okay, if I do one, I'll uh, I'll surely learn. And now there are a bazillion of them. Now there are yes, yep, over two hundred. Did you ever look back on it and say, I, I wish I had gone a different route than you did to arrive at where you are? Yeah, no, not really. Um, no, because uh, I did interesting things the whole way. I met fantastic people, you know, all along. And to me, those were the most important things. There are other people that have different motivations. Some people have more uh uh, you know, monetary motivations and want to become a director or a vice president or the president of, of a company or something like that. And um, that was never my uh, my primary goal. It's funny. I, I, I think back to when I was growing up and a kid that I, I grew up with knew he wanted to be a civil engineer when he was about 10 or something. I, I mean, I didn't even know what a civil engineer was. But we went to high school together, and he never altered his direction ever. Went on to, uh, uh, you know, school and and graduated with a degree, picked up a master's, and he was a civil engineer until he retired a few years ago. And never once did he question anything that he had done. But uh, of course, I guess if you like where you are, you go, yeah. I'm happy with the way it turned out. But if you're not happy, would you admit it when you're 65? I, most people probably wouldn't. At least I don't think so. I just, well, if someone is 65 and has been unhappy in their career, that's, that's really sad. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if, you're consider, if you're not retired, if you're considerably younger than that and you're, um, you know, you're not satisfied with your career, Maybe it's time to reassess things. Not everybody can do that, but if you can. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 9th of April, 2023, and we're all watching China with bated breath. Oh, my goodness. It's not looking good, is it? Uh, welcome, folks, to this week's Australia Desk for episode 745. Well, Grant, uh, yeah, let's not look at the uh, situation in China because uh, as we record this, um, well, that might be actually generating a lot of uh, aviation news <laughs> and none of it good no. coming up. Anyway, Grant, you know, um, we normally have to do this, well, in fact, every week we have to do this uh, a week staged apart, but uh, just in response to last week's discussion about our accents, now you've got to remember you guys at Airplane Geeks HQ, from our perspective, we don't have accents at all. You guys have the accents. It's truth, mate. We don't have no accents. Not a chance. <laughs> no, we don't have any accents here. Anyway, you know what, actually, Grant, um, Seriously, though, that actually does highlight the importance of using things in aviation such as the phonetic alphabet. I remember when I was learning to fly and, um, you know, I I was living in the U.S. state of Arkansas down in the south, so you can imagine that their (laughs) accent is quite a lot different to mine. um, You all fly down here again. (laughs) Grant, you'll you'll get us into all sorts of trouble with some of my friends. What a shock. (laughs) Again, anyhow... um, you know, I, I actually used to have to modify um, my accent so that I could make myself understood. I remember having to call up to – now, you've got to remember, folks, this was back in the early 1990s when you would call up to a – I believe it was called a flight service station to file a uh, an IFR flight plan. 
But we always had trouble with the letter I and the letter R in the alphabet because obviously in our accent, if I say the letter R, it sounds like in American with an American accent, the letter I. So that used to cause all sorts of confusion. Oh, dear, dear, dear. But uh, also, obviously, the um, Australian accent, the cadence, at least from the southern part of Australia where we live, is um, a little bit quicker. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> fortunately for that, we've got the phonetic alphabet, you know, like X is for xylophone. Uh, oh, it works beautifully. G is for sa, <laughs> you know, uh, G is for nu. I mean, it works perfectly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, that was actually uh, actually quite interesting. I I actually had to, you know, when I was spelling my surname, which ends in the letter R, I used to have to say R, which I always sound, thought sounded absolutely, totally ridiculous. But it was the only way that I could get it across uh, with my accent. So yeah, there you go. I, not, not, of course, as I mentioned, that I have an accent. Well, I had the same thing when I was working in Boston. And I had to say, RM Systems, this is Grant. Because otherwise they had no idea who the heck I was saying I was. It was awesome fun. <laughs> well, Grant, uh, speaking of um, places where they have slightly different accents, let's talk about Vanuatu. And, in fact, uh, this was a nice little promo clip this week from our friends at Virgin Australia. Port Vila Tower, good afternoon. Velocity 53, finals, runway 29. Velocity 53, Port Vila Tower, a very warm welcome back. Wind is 290 degrees, 8 knots. Runway 29 clear to land. 100, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Runway 29, great to be back, velocity 53. Well, you know, Grant, I had to leave that cockpit audio in for the uh, short final, the announcements from the uh, Boeing cockpit, because I always think it sounds so cool. <laughs> How, face facts. How many times have you been landing, especially in a 737, and you're there going 50? 40, 30. <laughs> and not getting confused by saying other things like retard, retard. <laughs> no, that's the Airbus in you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Virgin Australia, Grant, they're uh, after uh, quite a few years away, they're returning to uh, Vanuatu out there in the Pacific. You know, Grant, that makes me think it must be almost time for me to take a holiday. Oh, I'm thinking exactly the same thing. There's what a, a beautiful part of the world. Oh, Vanuatu is just peachy, mate. You know, it's a great doorway to parts of the Pacific. You've got to get out there, make the most of it. There's some incredible scuba diving and snorkeling in the Pacific. Having been there, done that, highly recommended. Yeah, and of course, um, you know, Virgin and, uh, in fact, a lot of airlines, in fact, haven't been flying out to some of those beautiful Pacific islands uh, because of the COVID uh, years. But uh, good to see, Grant, that they're starting to fly back there. And, that you know, a lot of those islands, Grant, they really rely on um, on the tourism dollar. You know, I, I think, uh, of course, of Fiji, where I've been a few times, you know, um, the, the COVID years with uh, all the tourists disappearing from those parts of the world really, really hurt their economy. So good to see that uh, Virgin is flying back in there and taking some cashed up Aussie tourists, hopefully, there to spend some dollars. I agree, mate. But, you know, if I'm going to go and uh, hit the Pacific again, I'm going to Aitutaki. Um, my father has some amazing stories of that place in the 50s and early, very, very early 60s. And uh, a lady I used to work with back oh, in the before times is from Aitutaki. And she has posted some amazing photos, both before COVID and after COVID, of hanging out in the family area near one of the beautiful lagoons and all that and uh yes yeah, if i say kit is going when are we going to Aitutaki? Mm, yes well 
It's, it's, did I mention I'm uh, looking forward to going on a holiday soon, Grant? And we'll get to that subject in just a minute. Not my holidays, but lots of other people. But uh, we'll stick with the subject of Virgin Australia. And uh, this article here in executivetraveler.com, actually from a week or so back, mentions that uh, the airline is looking at uh, very soon taking delivery of its first batch of 737 Maxes. That's right, mate. They won't be the first Maxes uh, registered here in Australia. Of course, Bonza got that award. Uh, they're only flying the Max. But uh, Virgin's going to upgrade to the Max. They did have an order in the early days and the max troubles happened and they put it all on hold. And so now it looks like May, June this year, their maxes are going to arrive and they're going to actually start using them on the Cairns to Tokyo run because they have slots in Tokyo that if they don't start using them, they're going to lose. And it's interesting because Cairns, for uh, people who don't know that part of the world, that's way up in far north Queensland, and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. It's not exactly the largest Australian city <laughs> on earth, though, so uh, I find that interesting if they need to uh, maintain that slot that they've picked flights from Cairns across to Tokyo. I would imagine, Grant, that there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of Japanese tourists that would uh, come into uh, Cairns, coming in direct and uh, really enjoying the tropical weather up there. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's it's relatively well located to get to Tokyo. Um, if you look at it, it's pretty much straight up from there. And you can run a number of other flights that they already have from Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, et cetera, getting to Cairns and then stage through to Tokyo. And, of course, uh, you know, from coming from points further south, um, that might actually be an interesting proposition for Virgin now because those are routes that were perhaps once served by their fleet of Boeing 777s, which, of mm-hmm. course, they no longer have post their restructure. Correct, mate. Correct. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with this. But, yeah, Cairns to Tokyo, it's pretty much straight north. <laughs> you go, you, you take off and hang it up and go direct to the to Tokyo. I mean, the other option could have been Darwin, but I think they've got more flights uh, staging into Cairns from various other parts of Australia. Yeah, it's interesting. And in, speaking of various other parts of Australia, well, uh, Sydney Airport, now Australia's largest city, although according to some reports, perhaps not for much longer, but hey, we won't uh, go there. Uh, you know, Grant, people say that I quite often uh, pick on people from Sydney and, well, they'd be right. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who used to live in Sydney, I can attest to this. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, it's worse, Grant. You come from New Zealand. I haven't made oh. any Kiwi jokes for, for months. Hey, come on, come on. That was decades ago. You know, New Zealand's to Queensland, you know, Started in New Zealand, went to Brisbane, then uh, to Sydney, then overseas, back, yeah, anyhow. Well, look at me. I, I used to live in Arkansas, so I've been all over. I've been everywhere, man. Anyway, anyway, people going from Sydney, uh, of course, it's the Easter weekend, and, uh, well, there is the usual yearly bout of uh, traveller chaos at Sydney Airport. Oh, well, mate, it's not just Sydney. It's also Melbourne. Brisbane, and pretty much any major capital city in Australia. Yes, of course. Um, well, on, on the one hand, it is uh, good to see people travelling. You know, I wonder um, if our airports around Australia might have uh, found a way to manage traffic, foot traffic at least, a bit better. Or maybe it's just unavoidable. Who knows? But every year we get these reports about how bad, you know, Sydney Airport is, Melbourne Airport, et cetera, et cetera, because so many more people are booking holidays and going away travelling. Well, you know, on the other hand, what would one expect? It's it's the last really major batch of holidays for quite some months. So, of course, people are going to want to get away. Well, mate, I'll let you know what it's like because on Thursday, Kit and I are flying to Adelaide. I'm doing commentary at the Barossa Air Show over the weekend. 
So uh, may have to dial in an Ausdesk for the next one. But, uh, yeah, hopefully it won't be from a queue in the bloody airport. Yes, well, we're going to Adelaide now. Of course, that's actually not as busy a route. Well, there's actually not as many flights going from Melbourne to Adelaide mm. as perhaps there are Melbourne, Sydney. So uh, I always find that's an, actually an issue when you're trying to book flights over there because you quite often can't get the same good deals because there's just not as much competition on that route. Oh, hands up. I can attest to that. I mean, yeah, we've not paid a small amount and we looked at even Jetstar and Rex. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Well, what day did you say you were going there, Granted, Thursday this week. Now, we're recording this on the Sunday before the podcast goes live. Based on what I've seen from some of those reports, maybe you should leave tomorrow. That'll give you a few days to get through the queues. Honestly, I'm thinking you're right. Hey, three days on the airport. I, I'd be up for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kit may have words about that. Yes. <laughs> so would my wife. I can guarantee that. <laughs> anyway, folks, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. Yes, Grant, we will be talking to you, uh, you know, speaking of jangling banjos and everything, you'll be in South Australia next week. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and with that, we've just uh, alienated our five South Australian listeners uh, we may be Hi back guys. next week we may be back next week we <laughs> shall see until then i'm steve Fisher, and i'm grant mccarran cheers folks those guys are so wacky in fact i would certify here to be the first one to say this they are wackier now than they were 10 years ago <laughs> they are two wild and crazy guys yeah yeah we really appreciate the work they do. On to some listener mail. All right. So uh, we've been talking for the last two episodes, I think, about uh, the issues of traveling with small children, babies. Uh, do you put them on your lap or or not? And uh, we've had in the some overhead compartment. Overhead compartment. <laughs> um, so we received a bunch of feedback uh, from you all. And um, the intent is not to uh, continue this conversation ad infinitum. But we did get a lot of feedback uh, this week. So uh, Stephen wrote back and said, uh, I would like to invite you to listen to a clip from another airline podcast made by people I would consider experts called Airlines Confidential. They tackle this exact subject in their most recent episode, which is 181, at the uh, 7 minute 7 second mark. Please listen to Scott and Ben's take. It was very enlightening and speaks to more of my opinion and how statistically it could be more dangerous to the infants. Thank you again for being so generous with your time. I hope your podcast can continue to further these types of debates and strengthen the industry that we are all passionate about as a whole. Good luck and clear skies. Now, if you're not familiar with Airlines Confidential, it's a podcast that's hosted by two guys, Ben Baldanza who's the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, and Scott McCartney, who uh, you may remember is the uh, former Wall Street Journal columnist. He wrote The Middle Seat. And um, actually, a couple of listeners uh, pointed this episode of uh, Airlines Confidential out to us. DAG did also. But this episode, 181, it was published on April 5th, 2023. And I think the thrust of their conversation was that Many people either can't or won't pay for a second airline seat for their child, and instead, sometimes they they drive. Now, commercial flights are safer than automobiles, so children are safer in a plane, even if it's on their parents' lap. Um, so that was kind of what I what I took uh, from that. Uh, Micah raised some questions about, well, you know, how do you measure safe? It's all about risk management. 
Yeah, it's about risk management. Um, and when you're talking about safe, do you mean injuries per trip, per mile covered? You know, there's a lot of different, you know, time in the car and time in the air. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could measure it. And it's all, um, it's all very confusing, confusing. But Micah did pass along something that I wasn't aware of. It's a, a web page on the Department of Transportation website. It's called Airline Family Seating Dashboard. Uh, And this is something fairly new. And let me read the description. This says, A parent who purchases airline tickets for a family should receive a guarantee from the airline that it will seat the parent and the child together without fees or a last-minute scramble at the gate or having to ask other passengers to give up their seat to allow the parent and child to sit together. Because this is a criticism, right? If you buy your child a seat, well, <laughs> your four-year-old or your three-year-old or your two-year-old, if they're sitting on the other side of the airplane, it doesn't really help. So this continues. On February 1st, 2023, Secretary Buttigieg announced the department's plan to launch a dashboard that displays which airlines guarantee family seating. Since then, it says, some airlines have stepped up to guarantee adjacent seats for young children when traveling with an accompanying adult at no extra, uh, no additional cost. While this represents significant progress, USDOT is not stopping here. Secretary Buttigieg recently submitted to Congress a legislative proposal to require that airlines provide fee-free family seating. So that was new to me. So that's interesting. And then Denver wrote in, and he said, I always bought tickets for my children beginning in 1990. Some years I had two children in car seats on the same flight. I carried the occupied car seats through airports to make transfers and even traveled outside the U.S. Certainly, some people will pay for seats for their babies and do the necessary work. In 2023, on some airlines, Oversized people can get a second seat to accommodate their girth that spills over into an adjacent seat. That second seat is guaranteed to be next to the passenger seat. Somehow, airlines manage this. Furthermore, airlines provide seatbelt extensions and infant life vests to accommodate bodies that deviate from the normal size. Airlines could decide how they want to accommodate seating, in quotes, infants safely and how much to charge for the seat. I'm positive that any airline could guarantee a seat next to the Guardian. Airlines could and uh, usually do board families with a car seat ahead of general boarding. Um, so I, I think this is an example of uh, you know, going back to the previous uh, comment about the DOT airline family seating dashboard. It's like you know, if, if an industry doesn't take care of its uh, customers in a way that the customers want to be taken care of, then you run the risk of somebody telling you how to take care of the customers. And, um, you know, maybe we have a little bit of both going on here. So in any event, uh, Denver uh, finishes up uh, in conclusion, making safety seats mandatory for children who cannot be secured by a lap belt on flights originating from a U.S. airport. Let the airlines decide whose business they want. Let the parents decide which airline gets their business. And then he, a little addendum, uh, another email. Oh, this is from Dag. Dag said, I wanted to add something to the discussion of lap children on airlines. I know that my parents took me as a lap child several times. However, when I talked to them about the safety debate, they said they had no idea that it carried any sort of increased danger. 
Perhaps we should allow it, but increase education so that the traveling public knows what they are getting into and can weigh the risks themselves. Just a thought. Thanks for the great podcast. That's from from Dag. But I, I think that begs the question of Micah's comment about how do you determine safe? Hmm. Uh, is it statistical? Is it uh, you know physical somehow or anecdotal from uh, flight crews? Uh, or I I never thought of carrying my daughter as uh, anything statistical. I just said she's really important. I mean, she's the most important person in our lives, uh, meaning my wife and myself. And and I, I could never imagine somebody saying, well, statistically, uh, and I realize other people don't think like that, but if if I couldn't have afforded to, to buy the extra seat, then we wouldn't have gone. Uh, and I don't think I would have driven because I hate driving. So, But, you know, again, that's what makes us all interesting is that uh, some people are just not Smart enough to be like me. <laughs> well, you, you were doing so well, Rob, and then all know, of a sudden you dumped it at the end. Oh, I, can't, was I good. can't help myself sometimes. That was great, Rob. Good job. Uh, but, but no, I mean, I think it's a good point. Is that, and, and we're not, in this conversation here, we're not trying to, um, uh, you know, reach a conclusion about what's the right thing or what's the wrong thing or, or anything like that. I think it's just, you know, recognition that there are, that there are different, or maybe Rob is, that there are, you know, there are different, different views, like anything else. Different people view the same thing in different ways. And sometimes what's being viewed as something that's, you know, kind of, got as much consequence as what toppings do you put on your pizza and other times it's you know potentially there is there a life involved but uh, in any event people have different views of the same thing and so um you know we're we're happy to you know give a voice to some of the different views on this topic and and you know people can can or, or governments or airlines can take uh, you know the actions that they uh, they think they should so I don't know if we're going to get any more emails on this topic, but I think we we've kind of uh, covered. Well, we'll always take everything, but uh, yeah. But I think this is this is probably as far as we're going to go with the conversation, at least on the podcast. All right. Well, one last email. This is a long one. Normally we take long emails and kind of cut them down and make them a lot shorter. And I don't know. This one I just was interested in the entire email. Well, who died and left you in charge? I mean, why do you get to choose? Do you want to read this? Not really. No, go ahead. Okay. I think this is interesting. This is from Nate. Nate says, I enjoyed another outstanding episode today. I swear they keep getting better. Tell Rob he is far from short in his contributions to the show, regardless of his physical stature. I've really enjoyed his more constant presence over the last several months. Great to have Max T back after a couple of weeks as well. Okay, that very nice. Thank you, thank you. Um, so he goes on. It was very. It was a very interesting discussion regarding the Delta Airbus abort in New Orleans. In my career flying transport category aircraft in both the uh, the Air Force and now at a major U.S. airline, I've had the opportunity to think about and discuss some of the philosophy behind the go no go decision many times. At my airline. The captain is solely and exclusively responsible for the decision to reject the takeoff and the execution of the maneuver. 
It is perhaps the most significant decision entrusted to a single person in airline operations, and one that must be made in seconds or less. Once the thrust levers are advanced for takeoff, the captain is the only person with the authority to command and abort. Not tower, not dispatch, not another aircraft, not even the first officer at most airlines, he says. If the FO is flying a takeoff and I, as the captain, make the determination to reject, I will loudly announce, reject, I have the aircraft, while taking control of the airplane and applying every stopping measure at my disposal. At my airline, the only thing the FO is permitted to do is continue the takeoff, assuming the captain is not judged by the first officer to be incapacitated. The captain, of course, has to consider every bit of information available when making such a consequence-laden decision. He or she is one in the is the one in the best position to evaluate the complete situation and act appropriately. Even a dictate from the tower, cancel takeoff clearance, issued after a takeoff roll has commenced, does not necessarily compel the captain to abort. The captain must be aware that the level of threat to his or her aircraft in such a scenario is likely high, but stopping may not be the best answer. The tower does not know the aircraft's speed, weight, power setting, acceleration weight, stopping limitations, i.e. deferred thrust reversers, or maneuvering capability. As Rob mentioned, a high-speed abort in an airliner can lead to consequences from wheel fires to runway excursions, which can result in significant injury and or loss of life. Nate goes on, as you mentioned in discussing the New Orleans incident, the tower has a more distant view of the situation, probably from an angle, and perhaps with more restricted visibility depending on weather, time of day, etc., In such a case, the captain may see that the wayward aircraft is only slightly beyond the hold short line and has already stopped, as communicated by the tower in this incident, or decide that his or her aircraft is capable of getting airborne and vertically clearing the incurring aircraft. Or, as in this case, the captain knew his aircraft had the capability to safely reject the takeoff and, with the report from the control tower of an external threat, verbalized in the form of cancel takeoff clearance, he made the decision to abort and successfully did so. The point being that in the rejected takeoff case where such a critical choice must be made, there is simply no ambiguity uh, or the normal back-and-forth collaborative decision-making process. A captain employs CRM in this critical moment, crew resource management, Uh, in this critical moment, by assessing all the information available and its source. He or she will make a call and be held accountable for that decision after the fact. And then finishing up, as we've seen in a couple of recent incidents, other parties outside the aircraft concerned have tried to call for the rejected takeoff, but no one has more applicable information, experience, and or training to make the safest decision than the pilot in command. So Nate says, thank you so much for all you do for our aviation community. I thought that was a really good description. Bravo. Well said, Nate. Thanks for, for sending all those thoughts along here. They're, they're really excellent. That should be a magazine article, you know, or something like that. One of the things I rely on heavily are the uh, the big black uh, numbers along the side of, the run- of longer runways, which tell you how many thousands of feet uh, you have left remaining, which is really great. 
uh, for example, often will land at uh, Stockton, which has about 9,000 feet of runway, and we'll, you know, we'll do stop and goes. And so I'll often tell folks, you know, after we've stopped, 5,000 feet to go. So it's just really clear how much runway we have left. Well, the really short runways don't have that, but man, I just love it for the long runways because it really provides a lot of instant information to uh, the pilot. Mm, for sure. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a uh, a podcast tonight before the show started from uh, from Slate, and uh, John Ostrauer was on it talking about uh, airline issues and whatever. And uh, I can't remember the uh, reporter that was doing it, but uh, she she prefaced the show with uh, uh, warning: this show will uh, you'll hear on this show you'll you'll hear a an air traffic controller swearing. And and it was the uh, controller at at Kennedy when when the uh, guy pulled out of the run when he went, you know, and you just heard the you didn't quite yeah. hear the whole thing, but you know what he said, and and I thought, oh my lord, we have lost our minds. Now we've got to warn people <laughs> when they listen to a show that you may hear a word that some people will find uh, uncomfortable. Uh, but anyway. Uh, but John did a good job. He, he's, a, you know, he's a pretty smart dude. He does oh, analysis really well. He does. Uh, you know, for a guy with a beard, I mean, you know. <laughs> you know, you know when else you can hear language like that in a podcast, Rob, is when something runs across the desk. <laughs> um, well, that that could be. Uh, that's if someone was silly enough to leave something like that in the podcast. But my guess is that a a really top-notch producer would never allow uh, his comrades to be embarrassed by somebody yelling, Mouse! Mouse! <laughs> I, I don't know. Trescott, I, I, are you with me? I think the vo- I, I think the expletive tag needs to go on the front of this show just so that can be left in. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing, and most this is inside baseball kind of stuff for, uh, for podcast. There are many countries in the world that require podcasts to be clean, or they'll just delist the podcast altogether, which is why a lot of podcasters seek to not include words like that. And when we uh, upload podcasts, we've got to, uh, there's a field where we have to uh, choose four different things, one of which is clean, and I don't remember the other three alternatives. So, yeah, there are, <laughs> there are ramifications uh, that, uh, you know, affect how many downloads are possible. So, yeah. You, you I, mean I, to tell me you think that my yelling at this poor little uh, gray rodent, uh, you know, earlier tonight might cause us to be uh, uh, poorly rated in the uh, in the world? I don't know. People will have to uh, listen to the outtakes and make up their minds. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. That's it for this episode. Thanks for, for listening. We, we always appreciate you uh, sticking with us through to the end here. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com for show notes. The uh, direct link to the show notes for this episode, of course, is airplanegeeks.com slash 745. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. David Vanderhoof, anything uh, in closing? M-I-C. See you real <laughs> soon. Right. K-E-Y. Why? Because Rob's our rat. M-O-U-S-E. <laughs> I just right. thought that's quite a coincidence. It is. You're going to see the mouse, and I saw a mouse. I, I mean, go figure. All right, David, where do we find you? 
You can find me at the American Helicopter Museum, um, just like our visitors over the weekend. Ken came down with his wife. Um, I appreciated the maple syrup. Um, and looking forward to any visitors to come to the museum. Um, hopefully, on on good days, I can spend some time with you um, and show you around. And likewise, you can find us on social media. And believe it or not, we're almost a month and a half away from Smithsonian weekend in June for air, uh, pilot day. So it, it that's all coming up and air show season's coming up. So keep look out for all of us. All right. And Max Prescott, where do we find you? Oh, the usual place on your podcast app. Just look for Aviation News Talk. Or if you want to shoot me an email, go out to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Very good. And Rob Mark. Jet wine, jet wine, jet wine. And I... I just want to be very clear about the fact that no rodents were harmed in the making of this podcast, <laughs> despite the sounds that you heard, except you didn't hear the one that I went and smacked that little. No, I didn't really hurt him. You know, that's the problem yet. with catching a mouse in a trap. They, You realize, oh, they're so cute. I mean, they're deceased, of course, but, you know. <laughs> but they're cute. All right. And you can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com, including Mastodon. Look for Max Flight on Mastodon. And so please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Keep the blue side up. Thanks for listening. And it's happened at some other airports as well. Apparently, this happens more frequently than you would think. It's kind of surprising. Ah! What the hell is... Shit! <laughs> what the... God. Jesus. What? What's going on, oh. Rob? Uh, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sitting here. Uh, and, and something moved under the screen. And and it ran across the desk. I just realized it's a mouse. Uh, holy shit! Where did you go, you little bastard? Get over here so I can squeeze you to death. Was All right. it, it wasn't by any chance Steamboat Willie? Because I understand he's copyright free, so uh, you're allowed to use him without uh, permission. Jesus! Holy shit! Did that scare me? I just saw it moving out of the corner of my eye, and I went, "No, that." There's nothing moving here. And then, then I, I went. <laughs> yeah, we could tell that wasn't okay. your dog or something like that. That was <laughs> no, something no, a lot more unexpected. Because the feet would be up here. Um, okay, I'm sorry. You'll have to. You heard about edit. that. This is, this is Rob's imitation of that South African pilot last week who found the cobra <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> underneath this chair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 In the piper. In the, uh, the Except band. he was smart enough to run away. I can hear you. I well, that know was, you're there. I, I mean, the the best part was watching you jump up on the desk and standing there. I mean, that was <laughs> yeah. that was probably the best part of the whole thing. I don't know how you I don't know how you were able to vault up well, on top oh, of the desk oh. that quickly. That was pretty not amazing. bad for an old dude. Yeah, the lifting up the skirt wasn't a nice was a nice <laughs> touch too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, anyway, uh, I'm gonna get Archie up here to sleep up here and 
catch the friggin' mouse. Yeah, you need a cat, not a dog, to catch mice. Well, you're right, except we're a little shy on cats. Okay. It's a good mouse trap. <laughs>